Have you ever noticed when people suffer and start talking, the room gets silent and others start listening? Have you noticed that? I did this week. I was at a conference in Chicago, downtown. It's just a one-day event. And both of the speakers were sharing stories from their lives. One of them was a man who had grown up in Laos under a communist regime. And as he started talking, he was just giving brief little introductory remarks and saying a few jokes. And it was like lighthearted. And then it got real, you know, serious and heavy. And he was talking because the conference was about reaching people from other countries here in America. That was the event that I was at. And so the nations are coming to the United States. They're immigrating and there's refugees. Well, his family was a refugee. They were fleeing from communist country and danger and war to get safety and refuge. And so as he shared some of his life story, he talked about his dad carrying the children on the backs of their mom and dad and running through woods, fighting bullets being shot at them. Uh, the room got real silent when he started talking about his uncle who was with them, the extended family. And as they were walking through the woods, they heard a click under the uncle's foot. And they started giving their final goodbyes to one another. And it was not easy, but eventually the family left the uncle and an explosion went off and they buried his remains. And it's one of those moments as I heard that story, the room got real silent. Your heart starts beating and your eyes start welling up. And you're like, I want to listen to this guy and what he has to say. And he was able to tell the rest of his story was that the Lord brought them to the States and he ended up starting a church in Toronto and reaching people from all over the world. And that one of his mom's last memories was not of war, not of violence, not of bombs and explosions, but of seeing him preach the gospel right before she died. And he said, it's just so thankful for God's deliverance. The next speaker gets up and he starts sharing about doing missions work in West Africa and things are going well. He's learning the language and the culture and the people and then he gets malaria. Within a few days, they know that they can't care for him where he's at because of the limited medical personnel and supplies. So he gets airlifted out, goes back to the United States. He takes a year of recovery with extreme diarrhea and you're thinking that must be terrible that's only the half of it because they decided the gospel's worth it we're going back and within two three four days it was within the first week he gets malaria again gets airlifted again heads back home to the united states and this time it takes two three years to heal and this man looks at all of us and again the room gets silent you're like oh Sounds awful. And he says that a friend invited him to New York City, 
helping with a little project, and one of the first people he meets is from the very tribe that he was reaching in West Africa, and he starts sharing the good news, and an entire ministry gets birthed somewhat randomly in his mind in New York City, and he didn't have to go back to West Africa. He was reaching these West African peoples here in the United States. There's a really cool story about how God's bringing the nations here and that we can do overseas missions without leaving our zip codes and staying here. And it, it was very inspiring in that way. But at one point, he looked at all of us and he says, I never, ever want to go through those painful years again, as you would imagine, right? And he says, but what I learned through it and how God brought me to this place, the deliverance on the other side, I wouldn't take it back either. And if you're a Christian, this is not a new story or testimony. You have more than likely read biographies or heard stories or illustrations of people saying these very words. I don't wish this suffering on anybody. I wish it never happened to me. It was awful. It was painful. But if it were to happen all over again, I don't know if I'd say no. Because of the intimacy of knowing the goodness of the Lord in it, how he uses terrible, awful, painful things, and he brings good out of them, so much more glorious than you could ever imagine. And so I do not have a personal story. I don't believe I have suffered quite like these men. But the psalm we're about to read is written out of suffering from a man who has suffered. And so I would like you to give him the attention he deserves. And we're going to see in just a moment the sort of suffering that he has gone through, but I just want to read it. And what we're going to see when this man speaks up, the room should get quiet. We should listen. Wow, this man has gone through a lot. What does he say to us? I think this is in the one sentence. Before we read it, just here's what you're going to hear. If I can praise God in this situation, then all of us should praise God in all of our situations. Let's read it together. Psalm 34, found on page 463. Of David, when he changed his behavior before Abimelech, so that he drove him out and he went away. I will bless the Lord at all time. His praise shall continually be in my mouth. My soul makes its boast in the Lord. Let the humble hear and be glad. Oh, magnify the Lord with me and let us exalt his name together. I sought the Lord and he answered me and delivered me from all my fears Those who look to him are radiant, and their faces shall never be ashamed. This poor man cried, and the Lord heard him and saved him out of all his troubles. The angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear him and delivers them. Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. Oh, fear the Lord, you his saints. For those who fear him have no lack. The young lions suffer want and hunger, but those who seek the Lord lack no good thing. Come, O children, listen to me. I will teach you the fear of the Lord. 
What man is there who desires life and loves many days that he may see good? Keep your tongue from evil and your lips from speaking deceit. Turn away from evil and do good. Speak peace and pursue it. The eyes of the Lord are toward the righteous and his ears toward their cry. The face of the Lord is against those who do evil to cut off the memory of them from the earth. When the righteous cry for help, the Lord hears and delivers them out of all of their troubles. The Lord is near to the brokenhearted, saves the crushed in spirit. Many are the afflictions of the righteous, but the Lord delivers him out of them all. He keeps all his bones, not one of them is broken. Affliction will slay the wicked, and those who hate the righteous will be condemned. The Lord redeems the life of his servants. None of those who take refuge in him will be condemned. Well, did you hear it? Did you hear what this man who is going through much pain and suffering pens and writes down for us in poetic fashion? If I can praise God in this situation, then we, come, we, is the first three verses. Let us extol him at all times in every situation. The outline of this morning's message as we consider what this poem has for us, this song out of darkness and the depths of pain, is going to be the ABCs. And that's not just for sermonic, hey, here's the ABCs. It is because this poem was written in an acrostic. And you can't read it because you're not reading it in its original language, but in the Hebrew, the first sentence, the first word's going to begin with the first letter of the alphabet all the way down. So, Aleph, Bet, Vet, Gimel, Dalet, Hey, and keep going on. So, with that in mind, to help you remember that this psalm is an acrostic psalm, 22 verses, there's 22 letters in the Hebrew alphabet. We're going to do the ABCs for our points. So point one, accept the argument that's being made here. Accept it. Point two, believe in the basics. So we're going to consider how to practice praise in the midst of suffering, and it's going to go back to the basics. See, confess the Christ who is here in this psalm. Accept the argument, believe the basics, confess the Christ. Let's first accept his argument. Why was David able to worship? Why was he able to turn to the Lord, and why should we? I think the answer he gives first, that you should accept this argument, is he's experiencing from his own personal experience all kinds of suffering, but in the middle of that suffering, he sought the Lord, and what did the Lord do? He answered. He came through. He delivered. The Lord was near. So let's look at verse 1 again. Make sure that this story is fresh. Make sure you're understanding what I mean by this man going through a lot of fears and pains and trials. Verse 1 says of David, when he changed his behavior before Abimelech. Abimelech is often referred to as not a particular name, like that's the, the name of this king, but rather like Caesar or Pharaoh. There's many different Abimelechs. It just means mighty king. And so Abimelech we see is actually Achish in 1 Samuel. So don't think, oh, wait, 
the Bible contradicts itself. Why don't they get it right? It's not Abimelech, it's Achish. No, it is Abimelech, like Caesar Achish. That would be, or Pharaoh Achish. So that's what he's talking about. And Kenny just read to us the story, so I'm not going to read it over again. But as you heard, it was in 1 Samuel and the chapters around that when David is fleeing. So if you don't know, Israel is a nation in the ancient world. So picture this this nation, this group of people. There's hundreds, thousands, millions of them. And they want a king, and eventually God gives them a king, and they pick a, a very terrible king. His name is Saul, and God decides to be gracious to them and give them a new king. And they anoint this new king over the nation, and his name is David, the guy who writes this psalm. Now this is good news for David. He is going to be the new king. He is anointed as the new king, but the problem is Saul is still on the throne of the kingdom of Israel. So can you see the good news and the bad news? What happens when somebody says, hey, I'm the new president, but the president is still in the office? Everyone's like, we've got a little conflict here. If the president is a little egomaniac, then he might not like people saying, I'm the new president. So picture that situation here. Saul is angry. He is an egomaniac, and he gets jealous and unhappy with this arrangement. So he wants to kill David. So that's why David's running, literally, for his life. He is running away. As he runs away, he loses his very best friend, Jonathan, in chapter 20. He has no bodyguards, no team, no armor, no weapons, no food, until eventually in chapter 21 he gets to a city called Nob, N-O-B, Nob. And as, as he's there, he asks one of the priests, hey priest, can I have some food? I'm really hungry. And he says, all I have is the holy food. And eventually he gets the holy food. And then he asks, I don't have any weapons. I'm on a secret mission. It was urgent. I'm just empty-handed. He doesn't want to share the whole situation in fear that he'll get caught. So he says, look, I don't have any weapons. Well, except one. I have this sword, and it's from this guy, Goliath. You ever heard of him? And if you don't know the David and Goliath story, David took that sword and chopped Goliath's head off. He's very familiar with this sword. And he goes, oh, I know that sword. There's none like it. I'll take it. And then he runs some more for his life. And as he's running, he comes to a city called Gath. And at this point, you should gasp. (gasps) What? Gath? Why should you gasp when you hear Gath? It's where Goliath's from. And here's David, the guy that killed Goliath, with Goliath's sword in his hand. Not not a good idea, right? Like, what's David doing? We don't know. The story doesn't tell us. We could presume he's desperate. He just needs somewhere to go. He's going to hope, hey, Achish, help me out. As you read the story, as we heard, he gets found out. People are like, David's sword. Hey, that's David. Isn't that the guy that they said he's slaying thousands? Isn't that him? And everybody knows it's him. So David's like, what do I do? Oh, no. So he puts on his best Academy Award performance and acts crazy, insane. He goes mad. The text here in verse 1 changed his behavior. It's he lost his good sense. Not because he went crazy, because he's pretending And so as you remember in the story, he's he's drooling. He's drooling spit down his beard, and he looks like he's coloring and writing all over the the gates. So He he looks like a crazy madman. And it's one of the best lines in 1 Samuel when King Achish finally gets him and 
he sees this crazy man. He's like, I got enough crazy people in my kingdom. I don't need another one. Get him out of here. What? This is not David who killed thousands. And so he's delivered. And then in the very next verse says that David runs some more. And he finds shelter in a cave. That's the story. So I want you to picture David. He's, he's got enemies in front of him. He's got enemies behind him. He's being chased. Have, have you ever had that feeling? Like our friend from Laos or David? Where somebody's chasing you and wanting to kill you. I have not. I can't speak from experience what it's like to still hold faith and praise God in that experience. But David, David does. He knows what that's like. When it says fears, by the way, look down in verse, I mean, really, you, you need to see, if that's the context, look now at the psalm. N- notice the language. Verse 2 says, let the humble hear and be glad. Look at verse 4. I sought the Lord when I was afraid, and he delivered me from all of my, my fears. And you could really translate that his terrors, like he is extremely terrified. When you look down at verse 6, he says he is a poor man, this poor man. He, he was empty. He had nothing. He just had Goliath's sword and some bread, and he's in a cave. He's got no friends. He used to be in a palace. Could you imagine? Going from having everything to nothing. And the reason Saul's even chasing him is because he was supposed to be eating at the king's table in chapter 20. But he wasn't there because he was running for his life. And so Saul finds out what, what's going on with David, and so he chases after him. He wants to kill him. Verses 17 and 18 of our psalm says that he's crying for help, that there's all kinds of trouble, that, that there's brokenheartedness, there's crushed in spirit. Does not the poem accurately describe what somebody like that might be going through? Or as verse 19 says, many are the afflictions of the righteous. And that's when there should be not a hearty, but a solemn amen. This is true. Many are the afflictions of the righteous. We we are not exempt from suffering. Following Jesus does not mean no more suffering. If anything, it's often increased. So what are you going through? Do you have any troubles and fears? Does this psalm relate at all with your life? Well, The way this church has been set up is, I already know the answer to that question. I know that many of you are struggling through fears and anxieties. Asking questions, what if the surgery does not go well? What if the test results come back bad news? What if my pains do not go away? What if my child continues going down the road that they're on? What if I never get married? What if I am married and my spouse does not seem to change, and if they do change, it's only for the worse? What if things get worse at my workplace? And working with my coworkers makes my job so incredibly difficult. What if my family members respond in anger because of my desire to follow Christ? 
I make that list up. That's, that's things that are going on with people in this church. This psalm should be relevant to us. We are experiencing many troubles, afflictions. This church is not exempt from suffering. So what was God like for David in the midst of that? Embassy Church, what will God be like for you individually and us corporately as we face many afflictions? He will answer. He will listen. He will give you his time and his ear. He saves. He delivers from all troubles, all fears. He knows. He can see his eyes are toward the righteous. His eyes are toward you. He does not have a blind eye at your pain and suffering. He is not surprised. He can see and he knows and he cares. How many of us are not believing this argument? We have not accepted this as true, that when difficulties happen, we run away from God or we think God is distant or that God is punishing or condemning. That is the exact opposite argument being made here by David. He is saying that the righteous will not be condemned. He is saying, I will protect and preserve and redeem all through this psalm. He is not far away and distant. Rather, he is closer. He is near, especially to the brokenhearted. This is what God is like. This is the God of the Bible. This, my friends, is the gospel news. The reason we are choosing this psalm for this week is because this is the Sermon on the Mount. Blessed are the poor in spirit, the humble, the broken, the meek, the persecuted. Happy, blessed are those people? Is Jesus the madman? I was studying this again this week, trying to understand further. What is this idea of blessing that we're about to eventually get to in April on the Sermon on the Mount? And some commentators agree that because it's just difficult to put a right word on it, we've, we've used the word blessed as happy, but there's all these bad connotations of happy with all the kind of American modern views of happiness. Happiness probably doesn't cut it. And so one argument is that it's congratulations. It's like, good for you. Like, this is good. Good for you that you're poor in spirit. Good for you that you're broken. Not because that's good, but because God will be near to you. Because God especially loves and cares for those kind of people. So many people think, no, no, because I'm in this situation, it must be because of my sin. It must be because God doesn't love me. I must be far off. And the gospel good news that Jesus proclaims as he starts the Sermon on the Mount is you have got it all upside down. Blessed, rather, congratulations that you are in this state because I especially love you and care about you and am listening to you. How blessed are you when you are in those situations? Do you believe the argument? Have you accepted it? Following Jesus does not mean you will not suffer, but it does mean you'll be saved through suffering. Following Jesus does not mean that you will not die, but it does mean that you'll be delivered by death. Jesus' death. Following Jesus does not mean that you will not have tears streaming down your face again and again throughout your life, but it does mean that your cry and your tear will be heard and eventually wiped away. Following Jesus does not mean you 
will enjoy all the pleasures of this world. Follow Jesus, health, wealth, and happiness. That's what blessed means, happy, right? It does mean that you will taste and see a far superior pleasure than all the earthly pleasures could ever offer, namely the Lord himself. Following Jesus does not mean that you will not have any more broken bones, but it does mean that because Jesus' bones were not broken on the cross, his death brings healing to all of our broken bones. Have you accepted this? Do you agree? If you don't, then there's no reason to move on to the next point. How are you going to live out this truth? And that's the second point. But first, you need to accept that if David can rejoice and worship and praise God in his circumstance, then we should in our circumstances. So let's believe now in the basics. How do we live this out? How does this psalm instruct us in the midst of our pain and suffering? And I want to give you three basic ideas. Number one, the first verse. Seek the Lord at all times, but I want to add a qualifier. When I first wrote this, I just wrote, seek the Lord at all times. But then I knew, I knew you guys too well. You're going to think about that just very individualistically, very Western, American. But the psalm is pretty explicit, isn't it? Let us together exalt his name. So here's my little addition. Seek the Lord at all times in community with one another. Th- this is what David is calling people to do. He's, he's potentially sitting alone in a cave and he pins, I want others to rejoice in the goodness of God in the midst of the most difficult times because I have tasted and seen that he is good. So first, seek the Lord at all times in community. I believe this implies discipline, commitment, and a training mindset. If you just decide to worship God when it feels right, then you will not worship him when it feels wrong. But if we're to worship him at all times, then we need a habit, a rhythm, a discipline that says, look, no matter what's going on, this is what I do. Do you have any habits like that in your life? If you like, hit your lip or your mouth, and your mouth really hurts, do you say, ah, it's kind of painful here, I'm just not going to brush my teeth for a week? Or you just kind of find a way, like, no, if I don't brush my teeth, like, eventually, it's just going to get worse. So I'm going to kind of fight through the pain. And that's probably a terrible illustration, but I'm just trying to think of, like, what are things that you just always are going to do, no matter what? David's saying, that's what it's like worshiping the Lord. You just do it. You just know. And there's going to be times where it's not going to feel like, yeah, that's what I want to do. I didn't wake up this morning and think, yeah, I want to go to church today. But you know, this is just what we do as followers of the Lord. Have you ever watched the Olympics recently, like the Winter Olympics? Or been to a concert? Or seen somebody and said, wow, I wish I could play the piano like that. I wish I could sing like that. I wish I could skate like that or play sports like that. You ever, you ever had that experience? Like, wow, that's impressive. Do you think they rolled out of bed and just said, yeah, just amazing. I mean, there's very few rare people, but anybody that has some sort of depth and skill has put in hours and hours of commitment, and they had to do it when times when they didn't want to. I remember training as an athlete in college, 
There's many times where I'm like, 6 a.m. weightlifting workouts? No, thank you. But you just did it. You had to. And you did it in community. And you held each other accountable that when you, like, overslept, your buddy comes to your room and says, hey, come on, let's go. Let's get up. You do it when you're sore and when you're in pain. You don't say, man, I'm really sore right now. It's just got, you know, muscle aches and, and problems. Ah, let's just wait till I feel better and then I'll go work out. So I want you to imagine if you wanted to be a marathon runner and you thought, wow, that's impressive. Run a marathon? Never done this personally. I do like to run. I'm, I'm weird like that. I know most people do not enjoy running. And for the sake of that, I know this illustration will be like not helpful. But please bear with me. I enjoy running. I get like pleasure out of running and the adrenaline and the excitement of it. And I don't know why. Again, weird. But imagine I wanted to be a marathon runner. I don't just wake up one day and be like, all right, let's just go run a marathon. It takes commitment and discipline and training. Now, in this illustration, I want you to think about it in this way. The marathon that we're running is more like the Chicago Marathon, because Chicago's great, and less like the Boston Marathon. The Boston Marathon requires a very fast qualifying time in order for you to even run the race. So that's a good motivation to run hard and train well. But very much, I think that's the mindset many people have about Christianity and God. It's like, well, I need to work really hard so that way I can make the qualifying cut, and then I can get into the race. That's not the way the kingdom of God works. The kingdom of God works that Jesus ran the race, it's won, and then he gives you the prize, and he says, listen, I've already paid your fee, you get to run the race, and again, that's why the illustration breaks down, because you're thinking running a race does not sound like heaven and glories and whatever else. But in this sense, think of it as like, yes, I get to run the ultimate race, the Chicago Marathon. Now here's my question to you. If you already knew that was paid for, it was done, it was, you have your spot, your ticket, Jesus paid it, he did it, boom. You get to run the race with him and everybody else and the great collection of righteous people that have received righteousness from Christ. That's your future. Would you wake up tomorrow and just be like, well, we'll just wait till the race day and get after it? Or would you be like, no, I'm going to train. I'm going to train when I don't feel like it. I'm going to train when it's hard. I'm going to train when I'm sad. I'm going to train when I'm happy. I'm going to train when I'm sore. I'm going to train when I'm not sore. I'm going to do it in community. I'm going to ask for a running partner. I'm going to ask for a coach. I'm going to get around other people. Don't, don't you think that's what you would do? I, I would imagine most of you would think, yeah. If I know that's what I'm headed to, you wouldn't just wait and then one day show up. It, it'll make the racing day so much more miserable if you just can hardly even run. So we want to commit as a church to disciplining ourselves to worship God every Sunday so you praise him when you're tired and when you're well-rested, when you're stressed out or you're at peace, when you feel defeated or you're just feeling victorious, soaring over the mountain, sad and grieving or happy and blissful and beaming with joy. This is one of the good things about why we have church every Sunday. And why it's good, not from a legalistic standpoint, oh, you didn't come to church, what's wrong with you? So that you can practice every week that no matter how I'm feeling, I get up, I just do my routine, I brush my teeth, I go, and I get to church, and I praise him with the other brothers and sisters, and I praise him in highest heights or in the darkest deep, whether pain or poverty, whether I'm 
all as it should be from walking on the road of suffering. Those are the songs we've already sung today. We wanted to sing them so that way you would have language and poetry and songs to sing in those dark days. Teach you and equip you. So seek the Lord at all times in community. Secondly, seek the Lord with all of your emotions. Have you ever noticed when you read the Psalms that it's just raw and honest and real? I think sometimes people who are really conservative and religious and stuffy, they read the Psalms and they're like, oh no, that's bad. Don't, don't express your emotions and your feelings. He's just so raw about it. I am crushed in spirit. I'm brokenhearted. I am fearing and scared for my life. He's honest, isn't he? And I think what the Psalms do is they help us create a different approach. Think of the two extremes. The extreme of the conservative, religious, stuffy type is to say, no emotions. Deny them. Don't be aware of them. Don't emphasize them. Just kind of be the steady routine of go through the motions like Phil was talking about. That's right. Train yourself for godliness whenever, even if you don't feel like it. Then there are the people who say, follow your emotions. Make them your guide. Express your emotions as the end of itself. Be in awe of your emotions. Bow down and just vent. Neither of those approaches, I think, work. I don't know if you've experienced that, but they're not real. They're not honest. The Bible is not the extremes. It presents such beautiful balance. The Psalms teach you to pray through your emotions, to sing through your fears, your anxieties, your suffering. So acknowledge your emotions. Learn from your emotions. See, this is, when this happens, this is where my heart went. God, I'm just being honest. This is where I'm at. And I'm coming to you, God. Process with God in prayer, in community, your emotions and feelings like the psalmists do. Pray and praise him when you don't feel like it. Have you ever gone to God instead of just saying, I just don't feel like it today? And then instead of not doing it, just saying, but I'm going to do it anyway, and I'm going to go to you, God, and say, God, I'm going to just let you know I don't feel like being here right now and praying. I don't feel like reading Bible. I don't feel like going to church. I'm just be honest with you. And I just want you to meet me where I'm at right here in this place. I, don't, I can't explain it. I don't know all the reasons why, but I just want you to know my heart says, this is where I'm at. Do you, do you think he doesn't already know? Like, like, which God are you worshiping? The God of the Bible knows you inside and out much better than you do. He knows already. Just be honest with him. Seek the Lord because he will hear you and he will look to you and you will have a radiant face never put to shame as Verse 5 says, those who look to him are radiant and their faces will never be ashamed. You will not regret crying out and processing your pains and emotions with the Lord. Number three, seek to experience the Lord. So number one, we said, seek the Lord at all times in community. Number two, seek the Lord through your emotions. And number three, Seek experiences with the Lord. I love this phrase in verse 8. Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Such sensory language, especially for those of us that are academic types like myself. And I want to read and I want to think and I want to study. 
so good for us to remember that at the core of being a Christian and following God is to taste and see and to experience and to know, not just in our head, but to know with our soul and our being. God is good. His ways are good. And so I ask and encourage you, do not just read about God in the Bible. Take a step of faith and put his words into action so that you cannot just say, well, I know God provides because it says so in the Bible. I know God provides because of this and of this and this and this. Have you tasted that? Have you tasted and experienced the goodness of God that when you were feeling the tension and you know this was the right way, you know, but do you know? There's actually a Hebrew word for this, yada. It's like the intimacy between a husband and a wife. Adam Yada, his wife Eve, and they gave birth. Like that kind of no, very intimate knowing. And all through the scriptures, especially in the Hebrew, it says God knows us like this. We are to know him like that. Intimately, personally, vulnerably. Experience the goodness of God. Don't just say and nod your head, oh yeah, God's ways are better than all the other ways of the world. But yet our whole lives, our schedules are running around like the rest of the world because we're putting all of the world's expectations on ourselves and trying to just do all of it. That's not the ways of God. Do you know that? Do you know that in your head? Or do you know that by experience, God's ways are good. He, throughout Scripture, tells you to rest. Do you know that? To rest. To not act like you're in control, but just to rest and say, God, it's yours. Do you know the goodness of God to give generously and see that he, you can never outgive God? Not just a truth to believe, but taste and experience. Do you know the burden that is easy and light? Jonathan Edwards illustrates this perfectly. He said, to really follow Jesus Christ is to not know and believe in him like you would if you studied in a textbook the texture and the color and the description of honey. That's what too many people think. Oh yeah, I believe in Jesus. I'm a Christian because I have read in a book and I now know in the same way that if I've never tasted, I've never touched, I've never smelled, but I have read in a book all about honey. And you could imagine, you could scientifically break down and write volumes and dissertations and have libraries of books all on honey and you read all of, I am an expert of honey, but have never tasted, never put it on your lips and said, no, it actually is sweet, I know. Is that what your Christian life looks like? Do you even aspire to that? Or is it just simply, yeah, I know. I know God exists. I know Jesus died again for my sins. And he rose again. He's triumphant and victorious. Or do you know where, like, Jesus died for my sins. He rose triumphantly on my behalf and is seated at the right hand of the Father. And I'm now united with him. Do, do you know that? And have tasted it. And put it on your tongue and not just licked it but swallowed it and drank it in it's good my friends this is the very basics of following god is to worship him with that objective and aim and not just merely oh i know and i pray that as a church that this would be the sort of church we are parents who give examples to our children of not hypocrisy and saying oh yes read the bible go to church then our lives do not look as if we've really tasted and seen. They, they will see right through it, parents. You are not going to fool them any more than you're fooling God. 
So let's believe these basic truths and pursue them and live in them. Lastly, the ABCs. Accept the argument that if David can worship God in the midst of this circumstance, when a suffering man speaks, listen, he says he's good, he says he delivers, he says he saves, do you believe him? And then run after the Lord, seek him. Seek him in community. Seek him with your emotions. Seek him to experience him. Lastly, confess the Christ that is in this passage. It may not seem to you that this passage that was written around the time of David 3,000 years ago and well before Jesus is even on the scene, what does this Bible passage have to do with Jesus? Everything, of course. Everything. Let's take the actual order of it. What did I say this psalm is? An acrostic? A, B, C, D, all the way to Z? You ever read in the New Testament that when Jesus is being revealed, he is not just Jesus the Christ, but he's got all these different names and titles. And in the book of Revelation, he says, I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. The reason I bring that up is because Jesus is the A to Z. The Alpha and the Omega is the first and last letter of the Greek alphabet. So if you were to kind of put that on this idea, this this psalm is to be done in such a way to say, look, the Lord delivers all through from A to Z. Look at the psalm again. Notice the repetition of the Lord's deliverance, the the God-centeredness of this psalm. I will bless the Lord, Yahweh, at all times. Every time the word Lord there, it's the word Yahweh, it's the covenant name of God. Look at verse 2. My soul makes its boast in the Lord. O magnify the Lord. I sought the Lord. Those who look to him, namely the Lord, are radiant. This poor man cried and the Lord heard him. The angel of the Lord. O taste and see that the Lord is good. O fear the Lord. The young lions suffer want and hunger, but those who seek the Lord lack. Do you you get the point? From A to Z, from beginning to end, it's the Lord, the Lord, the Lord. Who is Yahweh in the flesh, Jesus? Who is the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, that at all points, from beginning to end, he will be there. He is the same yesterday, today, and forever. It's Jesus. The very structure of the psalm, I think, points to an ultimate Lord. Secondly, that phrase, angel of the Lord, should be considered. Who is the angel of the Lord? He only appears in this psalm and Psalm 35, the next psalm. But he appears all through the Old Testament. And here's what we learn about the angel of the Lord. He can only do things that God does, or he does things that only God does. That's the angel of the Lord. He does things that only God can do. He makes promises that only God can make. And he is a visible manifestation of the presence of God. Do I need to say that again? Are you following me here? Who might the angel of the Lord be if he can only say things and do things and be like God before Jesus comes. And so as many people have argued, and I'm not going to spend the time to go through all those arguments, the angel of the Lord is most likely the second person of the Trinity. Jesus before he became a human, showing himself in some sort of visible manifestation. And so read this verse again now, verse 7. The angel of the Lord, that is the pre-incarnate Jesus, he encamps around those who fear him, and he delivers them. 
All right, so, so far you're like, all right, the acrostic thing, not buying it, Phil. Angel Lord thing, okay, maybe, okay. If you're still having doubts that this is not about Jesus, please drop your eyes down to the verse that the New Testament quotes from our psalm. Have you ever heard this verse before? Verse 20. He keeps all his bones. Not one of them is broken. If you've read your New Testament before, you will know that in John's gospel, in the gospel story, tells that as Jesus is hanging on the cross, they're wanting to get the bodies off of the cross before the Passover comes, as kind of like a little throw a bone to the Jewish Passover. And so they need to expedite and hurry up, Jesus is dying. If you've read the story, you're like, oh, okay, yeah. So they say, let's go break the bones of his legs because the death on the cross is death by failing to breathe. And so he, he sinks down and then he has to push himself up and then holds his breath until he pushes up. And I mean, just imagine the excruciating pain of having your nails in your feet. And so as every time you push up and down and you got this thorn in your head so you can't rest your head back, etc. Hopefully you know what I'm talking about. The many are the afflictions of the righteous. That's Jesus. But as they go to break Jesus' bones on his legs, they're about ready to knock him out, they said he's already dead. And they take a spear, and they shove it into Jesus' side, and water starts gushing out. And medical personnel have said, look, that water's showing that he's, he's actually already died. And then John says these words, to fulfill what was spoken by the Old Testament that none of his bones would be broken. Jesus did not get his legs snapped in half. He already died. So here's how I'd like for you to close. I said that many times when somebody suffers deeply and greatly, the room gets silent and you want to listen up. Has there been anyone ever that has suffered more than Jesus? So when he comes into a room and he starts speaking, do you think you should listen up? Listen to the words of Jesus. Congratulations. Blessed. Happy are those who are poor in spirit for right now. Theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Congratulations, blessed, happy are those of you who are mourning for right now. You will be comforted. Blessed and happy, congratulations to the meek, for you will inherit the earth. Congratulations, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for you will be satisfied. Congratulations, blessed, happy are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Congratulations, blessed, how happy are the people who are pure in heart, for they shall see God. Congratulations, blessed, happy are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Oh, congratulations, and blessed and happy are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And lastly, congratulations, blessed. Oh, happy are you 
when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Instead, rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we want to come now with gratitude in our hearts for the goodness that we have just heard, and I pray, hopefully for many of us, experienced, tasted, and seen. We thank you, God, that you have revealed yourself, not as a God who is an angry old grandpa up in the heaven, and whenever we mess up, you turn your back, you yell and scream, you kick, throw down lightning bolts and make our lives miserable. Oh God, we are so thankful that all through the Bible you tell us you are the God who is slow to anger, abounding in love, patient and merciful, near to the brokenhearted. And so I want to pray now for all of us in this room, and I know many of us in this room personally, I know many of us are suffering. We're afraid, we have anxiety, we have fear. I want to pray, God, that you would be near to them now. That as we go in to take the Lord's Supper, that this would not be a religious exercise, but it would be reminding us that we should taste and we should see that you are good. How good is it that you have come and fulfilled this word of Psalm 34? How good is it that Jesus Christ is the only righteous one? How good is it, God? For us to taste and see that our righteousness is not dependent on our performance, but on your perfect record on our behalf. Thank you for the cross. Thank you for your death for us. Thank you for teaching us how to praise you at all times, in community, with our emotions, even when we don't feel like it. Pray this in Jesus' name.